Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here kind of with Matt Leach. How are you? <laughs> kind of. I'm well, thank you. I hope you're staying safe. Yep. Staying home, social distancing and all that stuff that everyone's heard a thousand times by yeah, now. The world has uh, certainly changed since our last episode. It really has. Two episodes ago, we were talking about the bushfires and now we're in a global pandemic. I'm kind of worried to release another episode. <laughs> you think it's got something to do with us? Yeah. Mm. I, hope, uh, I hope everyone's staying safe, uh, staying home, managing not to go stir crazy. I feel like I'm slightly on edge, but uh, we're, we're getting through it. I think homeschooling is... Uh, is something I never signed up for, but and, yeah. I, and I hope you know. I hope everyone. I've spoken to quite a few people, and a lot of people are kind of learning new things, or you know, just trying out things that they haven't had time to do ever before. Yeah, good luck. Everyone's situation is totally different. Some people have more time. Some people have less. Some people have different challenges, and um, I think it's important to to understand we all live and and act and behave very differently. So everyone's going through their own struggle in one way or another. Absolutely. Before we get started, we should give a shout out to Streamtime, our partner helping mm -hmm. ADR run through these very odd times. If you're not using it already, it's a project management software that you should definitely check out and you can try it for free. So if you're home right now, well, everyone should be home, but thinking of making a switch or it's just a good time to check it out and, and, and try it. So there's a discount in the link in the show notes for any ADR listeners. Yeah, I'm definitely going through a process where I'm shifting shifting around a lot of apps and things that I've used yes. and, and, and moving on to new things. It's quite a good time for that. For I, sure. found, I found myself uh, organizing my home screen on my iPhone today, so which oh, wow. I've been yeah. meaning to do for a long time. Exactly. There's things you never really find the time to do. So yeah, it is a great time. And also, of course, uh, Never Not Creative is part of Streamtime. Yes. And have, it, this is a rhetorical question for everybody, but um, if you haven't, have you registered for Never Not Creative is asking for a friend. So you can ask industry leaders and psychologists, practical and relevant advice, no matter what your situation might be. The first session uh, was recently and it's actually available. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out. It's really timely. It's a great thing that they're doing uh, reacting to the current climate. So encourage you to check it out. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great initiative. And again, really would suggest people get involved. Um, so this episode was a little bit different because it was a partnership between us, Take Magazine, and Andrew Johnstone. So maybe you were really spearheading this. So maybe you could, maybe you could tell everybody about it. Yeah, so AJ had been keen to talk to photographers about their work and obviously take magazines all about photography and he was thinking about doing a podcast with take and he, he's got a young family and a really busy life and so we suggested this joint project because i thought it'd be really good for our audience to hear more about what photographers are doing as we tend to work quite closely yeah, it's nice to branch out from pure design for a minute or, you know, an episode or two and speak to some of those people in other fields. But it's equally important to have somebody there like AJ who knows that industry really well. Um, so maybe you could tell us who you spoke to. Yeah. So on this episode, we spoke to Nick Moore, uh, who's the chief photographer of Sydney Morning Herald and one of the founding members of Oculi. He's best known in photography circles as the fire guy, and he's been on the front line of many of Australia's worst bushfires. He's received a World Press Photo Award and been named Australia Press Photographer of the Year for covering the fires. Yeah, listening to the episode, he sounds like he really loves his job. He does. He starts discussing the storm chasing or working on the fires, and his, his eyes light up and his hands start gesturing, and you know he's back there kind of reliving the experience. I, I wish the audience could have seen how visually how he visually describes the scenarios. It, it, look, it feels a bit odd to be releasing this now uh, because it's really important, you know, that we don't forget the fires because, you know, the fires feel like, you know, they were the end of 2019 and it's kind of like last year's problem now that we've got the virus. But I still think, you know, he talks quite a bit about it, that this is going to be an ongoing problem for Australia. So I think it's, re it's still really timely and, and important that we remember what we went through. Yeah, great. That's awesome. It's a great episode. And, and as you said, important to remember because that will come around again very soon. So we, shall we jump in? Yeah, before we do, I just really want to implore people to go and check out Nick's work and look at some of the pictures he took in the 2019 fires. So as you hear him explaining it, you get the full experience of seeing what he was photographing as well. There'll be a link in the show notes. So we're going to drop you in. Uh, I guess we had quite a long opening conversation about his family and how he grew up and his dad being a famous cartoonist. So we're sort of dropping you in at the point where I guess Nick is trying to work out what his special things is going to be. Hope you enjoy it.
I knew I'd be good at something. I just had no idea what it would be until Dad got me a job as delivery mail, a copy boy at the Herald. And, you know, well, at least he got some money coming in. And I walked, delivered mail to the photographic department and came across um, Dean Sewell, dragged me over to the pub. And that was the end of that. Um, so had you had much experience with photography before n- then? No. Nothing no. at all? Well, so how, how old are you then? 17. Right. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, came out of, uh, out of that. I immediately just went, holy shit, this, this is what I was born for. Yeah. I, I looked around and went, these are my people. Mm. And I, I saw what they were doing. The, immediately just, I picked up a camera and got a job uh, and actually as a photographic um, copy boy at the time. And that was essentially uh, learning how to print or printing photographer's work, um, learning how to process black and white film, um, learning yep. the basics of a camera, replacing the copious amounts of um, film and and print paper that was stolen each day uh, like, like they're, they're honestly people who still got um fridges of fairfax film from 1994 like like 30 years ago and they still haven't used it all yeah quite a bit of responsibility thrown on you um but what was happening at the time is that was the very start of the digital sort of progression so photoshop had just started yeah but most of the photographers there had no concept of computers at all I had a little bit. I was one of the first who was um, learning how to scan and then work, use do basic um, my basic uh, darkroom skills, but using it uh, using Photoshop and yeah. stuff like that. Getting getting rid of dust and scratches and yeah, or dodging, burning, you know, yeah. all that mm. sort of stuff. And so I would be doing it. Um, they were starting up their imaging department then. Um, so I, even though as I was a seventeen-year-old or eighteen by that stage, I sort of had a um, a fairly leading role in actually showing the photographers how to do this sort of stuff. But at the same time, I was photographing as well. Um, I would go to the zoo quite often and just um, take photographs of the animals. But the yeah, the bit that got them my job as a photographer was I was there photographing tigers and they the male was trying to mate with the female and so it went on top bit into her head and looked straight at me at this at, at right down the lens i had a 300 mil lens and i got this shot in color of this male tiger just going and her like going shit um, <laughs> right down the lens and they just went wow the picture editor it, it went on page one Oh. Two days later, they offered me a job as a full-time photographer. So this all makes more sense because I think when we were researching you, it's like if you looked at LinkedIn, it literally high school and then working for the Herald. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just say maybe a lot. I, I, whenever LinkedIn started, I, I, I put in. I, I've forgotten my password, so I haven't updated. That's, that's not a very good, um, a, a very good bio, really. It's really. It, it is interesting because. Most photographers, when they start to, you know, actually become interested in photography, go through that phase of, you know, they might try landscape, they might try, try portraiture, might start shooting their friends when they're out getting drunk, things like that. But you sort of just went straight into documentary because of where you were. Yeah, and competing against, uh, like, DuPont, Michael, mm. Michael Amendola and Saul. Um, there was some astounding, uh, like, photojournalism around uh, that time, and Sydney was a, a good place to be. Sort of interesting era. It, it was like almost the second half of the, the last burst of that film photojournalism. That's when um, the, the first slideshows were being done in the back of um, uh, Amadolia's and DuPont's backyard. Um, that's where sort of uh, the Reportage Festival mm. started there, yeah. and that, that yeah. was cool. We would hang up the back there and smoking joints and, and just, you know, playing music and, and, and stuff like that. But it, it was, what it really was, was a life. Like, these became my friends, mm. and, and not just my friends, like like comrades. Um, we were the absolute rat bag, troublemaking, union, <laughs> rabble-rousing, always causing trouble, um, getting into fights with anybody over anything, anybody, you know. It was actually required. And also, like, there's a big difference between Australian photography, British photography, and the US photography. US photography, you went to university and learned yep. photojournalism. In Australia, you went to the pub. 
and, and you learned how to drink. Uh, and look, there's been lots of advantages with that, as in you got in early, yep. but you could learn a lot of bad lessons quickly. While there's been a lot of fantastic Australian photography come out, there's also plenty of plenty of garbage, and, and it led to a lot of photographers just not really thinking too hard about ethics, um, progressing photojournalism. Right. So it was, it was like a trade uh, mm. instead of yep. a profession. And, you know, while it was good and fun, it got you got to this point where you couldn't actually verbally explain why your images were important. Right. Um, it was also incredibly instinctual. Um, mm-hmm. Like the the best training would be essentially you going to TAFE, and like I think Dean failed TAFE three times or mm-hmm. something like that. And I, and I don't think there was. I think Andrew Mears is the only photographer who ever passed his TAFE course. <laughs> you couldn't actually explain other than saying well it's a, it's a cracking picture or well, something like that and, and it meant that we would lose time and time again against a journalist arguing why which picture should be used so right. it tended to be dumb imagery simplistic stuff that would just work for what the journalist was writing it was around about um 98 99 that a lot of like-minded photographers so we had trent park nick cubbon myself warren clark Jeremy Piper, Dean Sewell, Neural Audio, Tamara Vaninsky. Um, we decided to um, form a group called Oculi, which was essentially a... It was an outlet for um, photojournalism and photo essays, which we could not get in, in the newspapers at the okay, time. Okay, so that yeah. answers one of my questions, yeah, because I was, I was interested in why I set up a group like that with such amazing people as well at that time. Because we couldn't get published. Yeah. Like, they would run... It was all about a single image mm-hmm. and all about this idea that uh, one image will explain. You know, this, this right. shits me to tears to hear this thing about, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. It's like, well, sometimes it tells a billion words. Yeah. Sometimes it's um, actually just just lies like like i actually find um those uh, iconic images that might say everything about it that people say that it says everything it it doesn't actually no um photo essays uh, are where the proper narrative um is done and we couldn't get them run anywhere we also had tim clayton craig golding at the time you know and steve christo winning world press after world press after world press but it was really hard for them to actually get it run in the paper as well so frustrating and that's why we we formed that group and then look it went really um really well for the first few years it was considered to be one of the best photographic web pages uh, on the planet um and then everybody else did it. And <laughs> <laughs> but how was being part of a collective kind of, has it helped to get these photos published? Uh, it did at the time, at yeah. The time, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like very quickly we had um, interest from overseas, so, um, from Agence Vu, and so we got quite a few um, things published over there. But also you had the progression of, um, you know, the, the Herald and, and various other websites. There was absolutely no reason not to run a gallery. Yeah. Mm. They, they still find ways of not particularly running them very <laughs> cleanly or anything like that but mm. there was no reason not to and then social media obviously comes along as well yeah from photographers there was a hell of a lot of pushback particularly with instagram right they, they really the, the there was just so much Co- copyright and yeah that was mm, a, yeah. A, a big issue that they were worried about but the thing was that they were kind of ignored uh, they'd lost they didn't realize that the world had completely there was no value yeah. <laughs> in their photographs anymore. Yeah. People just didn't give it. They weren't buying them. Like, essentially, three-quarters of newspaper photographers lost their jobs around right. then. So, not that they actually needed to. It was more this, that was decided um, further up. But, look, um, it made a lot of photographers more accessible, particularly the ones who were very good um, mm-hmm. but uh, might be very specialised. I in particular I really quite enjoyed um, Instagram just to see what other styles and how people were doing stuff I guess it, it made you a little bit more um, visually literate but I also liked the fact that it allowed people who didn't have the luck that I did wandering in and yeah. to to compete against us and, and um, I, I really enjoyed that yeah it's good that you see that as a good thing I guess that you can also see that it just is what it is yeah, yeah. but a lot of photographers would have they just hated the very fact that it had yeah. been invented. I'm sure they still do. I mean, it was a beautiful thing that, that, that you know, you go and 
do um you know you take your shots on film and you go into the dark room mm. and you hide there for a few hours and then you have a few beers and then you swank around and, but I, I mean it was kind of a lazy um we work so much more professionally so much more thoughtfully like 10 times the amount of efficiency and, and, and work effort and ethics um, put into the jobs there were some exceptional photographers um, people like rick stevens bob pierce uh, you know tim clayton greg golding but there's also plenty of <laughs> there was plenty of dead wood around as yeah. well. Well, I think that's the thing with Instagram, isn't it? Is that yeah? And I think as a photographer, I, I remember people complaining about it way back, you know, seven or eight years ago when it started. Um, some of who you would be very um, mm, familiar yeah. with, no, friends I, with. They, they all hate it. Yeah, they, they, um, they and, and would, would refuse to even contemplate going on there. And now they have quite large followings and they use it you know very regularly yeah like um, i can remember andrew cooley was very much against it yeah he was uh, one i was yeah <laughs> but when he was over in afghanistan the ability for him on a daily to put out beautiful imagery mm. just of daily life in in kabul suddenly it was like yeah. people love that yeah and that that's actually what people were missing out they didn't actually need to see the daily bloodbath that was out in the you know the up in the mountains just actually having a look at what life is like in Kabul each day, yeah. but from a really talented photographer, it certainly gave him huge uh, ability to talk to the audience that wasn't um, in a New York Times or something like mm. that. Yeah. Um, it, it's that ability to, like I, I'll have uh, like daily chats of people telling me how much they love me. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's nice. You know what, the thing is um, like um, – of you make contact with people that would otherwise be very difficult to make contact with them um, specialists in in biology or myself it's various animals um you know yeah biologists um ecosystem you know scientists ecologists meteorologists fire behaviorists um mm. firefighters um from from across the fields that i actually really find it like extremely interesting and I'll, I'll meet them actually out out in the field, and we'll, we'll chat and we'll talk about stuff. And I, I get better educated about the specialities that they know about, and mm. um, and, and they uh, enjoy, you know, having myself around. He's got be able to get that information and get it into the hands of a, a journalist, or or I'll actually write it myself. Yeah. So, do you think a lot of work comes out of that? Internationally, these fires, yes, mm. but mostly it's just specialists or people who happen to have followed me um, yeah i mean i've not got a gigantic following it's about fifty thousand, but it's pretty good it, it's not too bad but i mean i've got mates who like with one and a half million or whatever yeah. but it was all about getting in early um mm. and then getting a lucky break really um, yeah. to get those giant audiences i uh, think the thing i keep on hearing is just that you know it's, it's you've got loads of followers and, and there's conversation and engagement and stuff but turning that into money and to like sort of pay the bills is always a uh, difficult thing uh, uh, yeah I, I think that only comes after like well over a million followers really a friend of mine um keith ledzinski is a um a, sort of a nat geo um one of their freelancers kind of there for their adventure magazines and stuff like that but he says that he gets 90% of his work through Instagram. Right. And that was because early on, they, a few of the sort of young um, Nat Geo um, freelance guys were essentially told that they could post what they want wow. on a Nat Geo thing. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like Nat Geo didn't even realise. This is when they were going through getting torn apart by various purchases, just undervalued what the value of the Nat Geo name is. Yeah. You know, they were posting up very beautiful photo photographs and people loved it and they were getting their daily dose of of nat geo stuff um and the thing was it was of a level was another level above most of the other people out there and so he very quickly got a very good yeah. um, but he, he w was um and a number of those that age group of photographers actually he's the same age as me just um had the background of working with film um high quality um and experience but also had the youth to be able to um, understand that this actually was something that was new yep. and would actually have the ability to reach out to a big audience. Yeah, I mean, I got in at 2011 when it started as well, but... <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of almost a full-time job, like building that following. It's yeah. not just put a good photo up. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually, know, in some ways, though, it's, it's more about educating. It's like, like there are... Uh, some of the photographers from the 90s who didn't jump into it, it's like people are missing out on 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. like um, for example, Dean Sewell went off into um, obscurity in some ways because he's uh, tended to do more sort of um, environmental stuff and he might be working for Greenpeace or a few other agencies or stuff just will go overseas. And some of the younger ph- photographers don't know how good he is mm. until they're actually on a job with him and he literally wipes the floor with them. Like, like Dean, like I still rate him as the best news photographer Australia's ever produced. Like, mm. I will, I've been at the Herald 25 years and if Dean's on the same job with me, I, like, I certainly feel no, no qualms if he, if he gets a better frame. He just, he just does. But, you know, he's actually, he's starting to get a, a better following now. But, um, yeah, it's only, only been on recently, right? Like, sort of maybe a year couple, or so? Yeah, a couple yeah, of years, yeah. Like yeah. He, I was he kind of surprised because having met Dean several times, him and Instagram don't seem to... No, mix, no, he don't. You know, they, they don't. They but, don't mix but, well at all. But, but he is, and I totally agree that he was, he's one of my top photographers of all time. Yeah. It took him about a, a year to read through all the Apple fine print. <laughs> and then he had to do the Instagram fine print. Yeah, because he is a hardcore rebel rouser. He likes Facebook for his good, highly eloquent rants. <laughs> They make very good points, but I just don't think I've got the intellect to actually be able to take it all in at once. Dean seems to be like yourself. I mean, and you, as we've been talking about, sort of come a bit from the old school. So it is that sort of long story mentality of, you know, you'll see a story through. Like you said, he'll do some environmental story and it might take him several years to shoot. Yeah. And that's something that is relevant to the sort of most of the Oculi team. They all, all come from that same school of thought. It's a lifestyle. Like, mm. you take on photojournalism at your peril. It, it, you're essentially committing yourself to being poverty-stricken <laughs> for your entire life. Uh, I mean, it, it, like, Oculi has never made any money at all. We've put out a book, but we struggled to do anything as a group just because it's so difficult to get together the money. I mean... There is just no money in photojournalism. It really is a love. Because that's really surprising. Because, I mean, you, you look at Oculi and, it, you know, the amount of awards you've won together and, I guess, just the esteem that you have, you would expect. Mm. Not rolling in cash, but, like... Well, we, we as far as the organisation, like, we didn't want it to be an agency and yeah. at no point did we kind of want it to be where money would dictate what jobs we did we only wanted it to be personal stuff that we actually really cared about right and look there were plenty of arguments and there's been plenty of members have left because of that um, but it has also led to you know essentially the doldrum setting in particularly the last decade as money just evaporated from mm. from the scene um, and also we've all gone and had kids and stuff like that but um since then we've um brought on some new members and and we've done particularly the last six months uh we've done actually some really um interesting stuff so through whatsapp what we did was we set up a few little essentially chat groups where we would be essentially the coordinating group but we'll go out and find young photographers or particularly remote photographers who had no access to other you know photography at all like one of the the real finds was uh rachel mouncy who is um was in malakuta um, we'd been chatting to her for a, a few months and then suddenly fires came in and surrounded the place yeah. and, and Dean and I were chatting to her over through, through the night as fire swept over the entire town. Um, they were all jammed into a hall. People were praying. They could see fire and embers going past and the fire engines were literally defending. It was the last stand yeah. as wow. she was there. And she just stood and delivered. Like She just photographed. And it was that sort of commitment where we've just gone, like, wow. Mm. Like, like, and there will be loads of these people out there. They just need to be, I guess, given the opportunity, A, to have something important happen near them. Or in the case of some of the other, it's called Dispatches, the group. Some of these other photographers just um, having the ability to talk to other failed photographers like us who can't, <laughs> can't, can't make any money either. For them to actually ask to push their work into other places where they cannot get paid or, you know, like the, there's, I mean, the amount of money available is just ridiculous. Like you can be doing a photo essay and get paid 500 bucks. It's like, it could be like six months work. It's, yeah. yeah. But we don't do it for the money. It's just, it so takes the piss, that's all. How did you get into this line of work, I guess, in the... Environmental sort of stuff. Environmental, yeah. chasing storms, yeah. all that... 
Well, where I grew up, um, which was um, near Bowen Mountain, which is just a couple of kilometres from Bilpin, there would be storms and bushfires around there. But I, I'd always, like, I was always one of those kids that always had dinosaurs and was hoping a volcano would explode in their backyard <laughs> um, and drawing dinosaurs and volcanoes and storms and tornadoes and all that sort of stuff. So it was just a funny little thing in my head, really. It wasn't until, like, about 97 that I actually realised, you know, I... I can actually i've got a job where i can actually do this stuff yeah there was very little um, photography in australia at all of storms um there was a little bit from the u.s this um when i first did my first chase was actually just before twister came out and it was sort of like ah, you know people actually do i didn't realize that they did that over there and so i like i can actually remember the very night that i started um, the photo essay, I was living in Kuji. Um, there was a storm off the coast and I shot black and white film. I've got the, I put them onto transparency and yeah, just some lightning bolts off the coast. Um, and it started um, from there for, for the storms. And I literally um, haven't stopped at all. Like every single storm that I can get to, I'll, I'll go to. Can you explain what storm chasing is? Like what, what's the process? So what... The goal is is to get what's called a supercell thunderstorm. So that is a rotating thunderstorm and that becomes organised. Sometimes they can produce giant hail, um, like awesome lightning, very strong winds, and every now and then, like the, the golden fleece is um, a tornado. Tend not to get too much of that in Australia. I've never got a tornado in Australia, no. but they're out there. So what storm chasing is, is you will maybe spend weeks or days forecasting an event. Essentially, it'll be revolve around um, watching an upper trough uh, move across an area of a lot, of, a lot of heating and moisture and then getting in position, if, that, if a storm develops there and becomes organised to get in Australia, in southeastern Australia, it tends to be the northeastern side where you can see, so you're not in rain, you can actually see the organisation of the storm. So you'll see it... Uh, the inflow moving in and you can see this, the actual updraft rotating and moving away and dropping its rain um, uh, away from the inflow. Just for our listeners, there's lots of hand gestures going yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very three-dimensional sort of... Essentially, you've got to have all these atmospheric maps um, of temperature, humidity, uh, wind direction, wind strength, all that sort of stuff from the surface up to like several kilometres into the atmosphere. Right. And this is all based on really crappy data back then. Right. I mean, even now, the chasing in Australia is like chasing in the US in the 70s. It's it's really tricky. And the road networks are very difficult here. Are there many people doing it? Yeah, look, there's probably about 50 hardcore chases in Australia now. Oh, um, wow. Back then, there was probably 10. Like, we would literally get in a group and do these big chases that would start up in Queensland and would just follow the weather. Are they scientists? Are they photographers? No, no, we're well, just nerds. Yeah. Just nerds. <laughs> just, just, yeah. All nerds. Oh, look, there's, there's uh, you know, there's a few people from the Bureau. I mean, meteorology tends to be more about data analysis and computer technicalities and various hyper nerds sort of stuff. Whereas the people who chase tend to be, you're more sort of, I guess you'd call them like, like field scientists sort of stuff. But it, it's it's mostly just photography and, and videography. But you do get people taking pressure readings, temperature readings. Um, that's here in Australia. Over in the US, it's completely different. Like it's like a big deal over there. People get killed by tornadoes every year. And, yep. and even, even these days, hundreds of people die even in one event. So you'll have like our guys, which are essentially photographers, um, just enthusiasts essentially, who might not even take photo, they might just watch. And then you'll have freelance TV guys, they'll have actual TV networks who are, their only job is storm chasing. Right. And that's what, they will have uh, been live streaming um, the tornado, you know, as it moves towards Oklahoma City or something like that. And then you'll have the universities, and they will be doing um, analysis of what's going on. So they may have um, what are called mesonets, which is essentially they'll have a team of maybe 10 vehicles all with a whole pile of um, data packs on the vehicles, and they will um, surround a tornadic thunderstorm and be taking you know, pressure and temperature readings of the low-end, the low-level winds and stuff like that. That all goes into 
you know, their analysis of, of what storms are doing because they still don't know that what is the difference between a storm that is going to produce a tornado and isn't going to produce a tornado. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're getting pretty good, but it, there's still a lot of hypotheses that have not been proven. So there must be a lot of people. Like, uh, Yeah, yeah. It gets, that's a lot of people. We haven't even finished yet. Yeah. I'm still going. <laughs> so then you've also got the National Weather Service and, and, um, and NOAA and various other uh, government agencies. They go out there. They'll be surrounding it with... Um, with radars, so they're called DAO, so Doppler radar on on wheels. So they'll be might have ten trucks trying to surround this thing and pulse it with radars to to take analysis of the wow. storms. Because you're talking things that are actually major destructive forces. They cost billions of dollars to the U.S. economy mm. each year. Um, so actually, spending a couple of million on these trucks is actually well worth it. Mm. Um, and then you've got the real nutters. And there's only a few of them, but you've got the guys who... This is Australians, yeah? Yeah, they're, they're, there's plenty of Australians. Australians are good chasers, so i tell you what. But um, there's uh, a couple of uh, guys who've built uh, armoured vehicles, and the thing is to get into tornadoes. And they have done it successfully and wow. done it... Um, so Sean Casey, he's a Nat Geo um, cameraman. He built his own vehicle and hired a couple of um, meteorologists essentially to get him into these things. Essentially, it's a big like Dodge Ram truck and they put armour plating on it and then he put an IMAX camera in a big um, rotating um, turret on the top. Uh, and they go there and then when they get to their spot, they lower it down, they, they, they'll go onto dirt, they'll lower, the entire thing goes down on pneumatic... Um, sort of uh, suspension and then it fires um, poles into the ground to anchor it down and what? then then these shields armored shields go down to the ground itself so that no air can get underneath the truck to flip it yeah yeah so and there's that there's another that's called the tiv the tornado intercept vehicle there's a couple of them now and then there's another one called the dominator <laughs> and that's um was built by a guy called reed timmer um back in the early uh, discovery channel you know in the storm chasers video show um, and it, it's not as hardcore as that but they've intercepted a couple of tornadoes as well right yeah. so look that's you, you you literally get um it's a whole industry oh oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's it's Caterers. very <laughs> it, it gets it's called the circus when you get onto a storm and you can have literally a um traffic jam of hundreds of chasers on, on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere and it, it like it's dangerous because yeah. how do you get out if something goes wrong yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and oh i forgot another one there's tour groups as well so you'll oh. have some of the most experienced storm chasers from back in the, the 70s and 80s they'll be leading tours of multiple vans full of um paying tourists from australia england you know wherever germany that tends to be where the nutters come from, Australia, yeah. England, and Germany. <laughs> um, and, and they'll go over and um, experience it. And look, they're very, very good. But um, they, there was an incident last year where two of the vehicles were hit by a, um, a low-end tornado, sort of unexpected and from a region of the storm that wasn't really predicted. Um, so, look, it's it's amazing. It, it's like you saw the movie Twister. It's mm. like that, but there's hundreds of those people. Yeah. A, and wow. they are, they're lunatics. There's awesome music. <laughs> like if you get a tornado, you go to the, it's called the Big Texan in Amarillo, Texas. You go there, you have a, a steak to uh, celebrate, you know, getting a good tornado. That's if you get it in the panhandle region of, of Texas. But, yeah, it's... Um, because it's you can't blame people because like when I see you know uh, your photos of it or other people's photos there's a huge part of you that goes I want to see that yeah. in the flesh because it's always I, I, I tell you it, like when but, you see one it's, yeah. it, it is even just not a tornado just a uh, if you get onto a rotating thunderstorm and this thing's not time lapsing you're sitting there watching this mountain yeah. rotate mm. and, and it's perfectly curved it's like it's like a yeah a, literally a, a god of the sky and it's like just crushing its way across you know the flat plains it's um you can, you can see that stuff here the the good thing about doing it here um is you might be the only one there to see yeah. it and you have it all to yourself and it is so much harder to apart from the fact that they are rarer here the actual even finding a road everything might be working for you perfectly but if there's just a, there's no road or there's trees everywhere, it, it can be really, really, really difficult. And then you've got to take a photo. 
Obviously, you've been shooting storms for years. And when did you first sort of start to shoot bushfires? Was it around the same time? Yeah, it was around about um, 2000. That's when I approached the RFS. I, I just looked at all the pictures that had been, been done before. And it was always aftermath. There, there was no images of the event happening. And I went, well, I don't understand why that can't we can probably do something about that so I went and talked to the RFS and they um, said well we don't have a media there was no media training or anything Mm. so they just invited me to train as an RFS member so I went up to um, one of the brigades in the Hills District and did my basic firefighter training there and then that was the start of the millennium drought around about then so 2001 we had um, really bad fires particularly around um, Sydney and um, there was a block called Black Christmas. Dean Sewell picked up the World Press that year, which drove me insane because <laughs> he, we, we spent the entire time working together, um, but he didn't, uh, wasn't shooting a digital. So I was on the very early crappy digital cameras and they were a nightmare. So we would shoot some stuff on digital and send it back for our crappy website. Then I'd shoot film and a helicopter would come out and pick up our film. Wow. Um, so I had my yellows. I was the only media who had, you know, um, RFS yeah. gear on. And Dean was running around with a T-shirt and <laughs> swimming goggles. <laughs> it's really funny. And, uh, oh, look, we learnt a lot in, 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 like, actually just how close you can get to fires. You know, a few what not to do's, what good things to do. But essentially just learning fire behaviour on a big day was... How, how close can you get? You can get really close. Right. Um, it's all about, in some ways, what's called having one foot in the black or always having a safety area to get to. We learned that by not doing that. Right. <laughs> Essentially just seeing how fast fire can move um, and then getting lucky. But uh, we thought that, that would be, you know, the most off-the-scale fires ever. And then 2002 happened, um, and 2002 was off-the-scale again. I got um, That was when, like, we were suddenly went from being the slowest form of media, as in you had to take the photo on film, take it back, process it, blah, blah, blah. It was at a fire up in um, uh, Glenory. Fire swept through, took out something like 30 homes, killed a person. I had photographs of this firefighter, burning house, him screaming. Had it back. We had it on our website, like, quicker than than the radio had even yeah. reported so suddenly we went to being able to compete with radio like the most immediate form of journalism mm. uh, and that was huge it, w- it was the impact of that was was really big but um, I set of pictures from 2002 won a world press that year yeah that was really good it, it for me it um, it sort of confirmed that I could compete against the best in the world but in only one thing, which was, um, but the reality is, like major news events, essentially in Australia are environmental. Yeah. So the only stuff I think the only news stuff that has ever won in the world press is either fire, or drought, or something like that. I actually can't think of much else. There've been a few daily life things, but um, essentially it's that. Then that's where okay, I really nailed down a lot of skills, and since then including Black Saturday, there's been a lot of um, progression and knowledge, particularly through storm chasing, actually understanding that fires are actually, they're the same. They are just, instead of it being moisture, you've got ash. But they tend to do the same thing, become organised. That's what we saw in 2009, um, was fire tornadoes and highly organised fire. Um, So pyrocumulo nimbus um, sweeping across across the landscape. And so we lead up to, say, 2016 when, or 2017 when the drought started to affect New South Wales in particular. We saw a violent fire um, called the Sir Ivan's Fire in 2017. Dean, myself and Jeremy Piper all got onto. And we saw some really interesting fire behaviour there. So it became a pyrocumulonimbus, so a, essentially a rotating thunderstorm that moved just ahead of the fire itself and started fires ahead of it with lightning strikes and then it would do what a normal thunderstorm would do which would put out a, a gust front or, or they're called microbursts essentially downdrafts of of wind uh, pushing ahead of the fire itself which would suddenly accelerate these lightning strike fires so that was really interesting for myself 
the drought kept moving and then we got to essentially September this year. Yeah. And um, the first fires were up in northern New South Wales, up around uh, Tenderfield. And the thing that was immediately concerning, um, and I remember chatting to a number of the media guys from the RFS, and, and they're all like experienced firefighters as well as being in the media unit, was the fire behaviour like literally three, four months away from uh, from the peak of the season. In fact, we hadn't even entered the season yeah. and we're having deaths and fires that were moving like incredible distances very rapidly. And the temperatures were not that hot and the winds were not that strong. Yeah. So the difference was the fuel loads were incredibly dry. The first fire that I was covering was essentially... Um, things very rapidly moved south um, and we got a number of fires around Port Macquarie and Taree. And so I was uh, covering a couple of um, those fires. They, they tend to be very brief, quick fires, like quick intensity of for a couple of hours and then they just sort of do their thing for a, a few days. But they didn't go out. In fact, one of them has still only it got put out yesterday wow, and it had wow. been going for, for months. So... The first big big day was uh, the, uh, on the Hillville fire where a number of the Oculi guys were up on that. In fact, the, you could almost call the, these fires the Oculi fires because like, literally every front page was for a few months was done by uh, Dean Saul, myself, Jeremy Piper and Matt Abbott. Yeah. Um, we're always in, in the right places. So I, I got um, some pretty strong imagery of, you know, just burning homes and um yeah incredible fire behavior i got burned over with a crew so essentially that's just fire they weren't able to stop it and it just sweeps over you um so everyone gets down um or inside the truck or hides behind the truck as the flames just literally go past you wow um choking smoke they saved the the farmhouse but it's an intense experience they hadn't had that that crew hadn't had that happen to them what do the firefighters think about you and the other photographers who are up there? Uh, well, it, it's very, very different. Uh, it depends on the crew. So the RFS is a volunteer organisation. So you'll have guys who are either extremely experienced, may have been around, you know, for 20 years and seen media at work. Whereas others, uh, yeah, really, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? No, get the hell out of here. That actually happened on this one. I turned up. It was the Kundal Motu Brigade. I turned up and this bloke goes, mate, it's about to get pretty hardcore here. I don't know if you should be here. And I was like, too late now, buddy. <laughs> and um, the thing is, I'm in my full kit and got a respirator and stuff like that. And then it swept over us. So he didn't have a, a face mask or anything. So he was choking his oh, guts no. out. And I'm just like going, you sure you want to be here, mate? <laughs> um, he, he was all right. He was all right. And, and he laughed about it. Um, but essentially very quickly like usually an intense experience like that they actually are really happy that you're there to actually um photograph the things change when when you start looking like you're a um you know some sort of parasite um or feeding on you know like, like just burnt out homes and stuff like that mm. yeah and it is your job to do that but i try to more be about the battle against the fire itself rather than you know the aftermath and stuff like that it, it becomes tiresome and, and and ugly sometimes it's also stressful the thing is that while there are plenty of really experienced fire journalists and fire photographers out there there's also a hell of a lot more that have no idea what they were doing right so that wasn't until later in the season though so around about then look you also had the gospers mountain fire it started um and i started the very photograph the very they're nothing pretty or anything like that but that was for me really just recording okay here i actually think this is going to be a big fire um, because it was very remote we'd already established that if there was no rain the, the entire east coast was going to burn mm. because that that was the thing all, all these fires started they were not going out mm. they would just burn until there was no fuel and even then they would just burn backwards against the winds photographing that until you know, it was inevitable that it would smack into a place like um, Colo Heights, which it did. So myself and Dean and, um, and Jeremy and a few others would were photographing it there and it got bigger and bigger. And then we had the um, Green Bottle Creek fire uh, ignite and that took a couple of weeks and then made its way 
to Oakdale and, and those areas. The big breakthrough image moment for myself was that the Greenwattle Creek fire had been pushing up against Lake Burragarang and threatening to jump, but it hadn't. And I'd been um, essentially warring <laughs> in some ways with uh, the editors of the Herald at the time they were going well we want you somewhere else down down south coast and I was going oh, we need to be here this is where all the the homes are under threat and um, to their credit and particularly my boss Mags King she backed me but that was it took like it was four days where the fire was not jumping and it was like exasperating even the firefighters were there going oh we just want this over and done with yeah. and then it did jump and it just tore into um, Orangeville and, and the Warombi sort of area. And it had been ripping through the forest there, and then it had calmed down. And then myself and Dean and Matt Abbott were up with a, some fire and rescue crews. There was actually no wind at the time, but essentially this fire had just been, like, walking slowly up through this forest. But what had been happening, it had been heating up all the trees and stuff like that, and re- they had been releasing all the gases but they weren't as able to escape what was happening at the time. And I remember sort of analysing, because I'm a nerd, and, and realising that there was called capping overhead. So essentially there was the smoke plume that was going over us was hotter than the air underneath us. Oh, and right. so it couldn't get up through it. Mm. it. It was held down. And so what it started to create, though I didn't realise it at the time, was the chance of what's called an area ignition. So essentially there, the air was becoming volatile. And then a very slight change of wind allowed enough fresh oxygen or something into the area. And then the enti- this 300 metre long and 50 metre deep area of forest all ignited over about two to three seconds. It just went, wow. it, 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 it literally exploded. The fire brigade were there just waiting and I was just hanging around with them. And then suddenly just, yeah, the forest exploded literally metres away from us. We all just ran, had to run. I've taken like shots of that of just these gigantic 100 meter high flames like over the top of us yeah. I, I, w- I was using a 24 to 70 and it's just it's just all flame it's couldn't even remotely capture it all yeah there's a lot of hand waving around going at the moment <laughs> um and then we ran backwards into uh, our safety zone um, but there were, were then just the air was filled with millions of these embers swooping around us one firefighter jumped in the insight to jump into his fire truck and get it out of there because it was about to catch on fire. Uh, it would have suffered some sort of damage to it. Um, and then they, some sheds and a, um, a, a outhouse and stuff like that all caught on fire in front of us. It was an incredible event to see. Only just missed out on getting it onto the next day's front page by literally minutes. I was ringing up, trying to fire while fire embers are going around yeah. us and stuff like that. And just saying, hold the front page. It was like so cool to say that. <laughs> but then they're going, sorry, it's already gone. It's like, but anyway, so that's where the big difference there, social media. I put it out on Twitter and on Instagram mm. and it went ballistic. Yeah, yeah I remember seeing that. Yeah. yeah. That that image of the guy running with the embers mm. and stuff like that. And then also this picture of a truck with a fire tornado next to it. Like the, the, the fire behavior like that hadn't been photographed before. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was more to come, but... Um, yeah, that was a big deal. And um, the next day, they sent a journalist out with me. They started putting journalists out in the field. Then the Herald really, really backed me and the rest of the team. They, they went, okay, now this is a major event. Now, this is the difference between our paper is uh, the, um, the forethought and an actual um, predicting what was going to go. They would put their photographers and journalists out there ready for it to happen not be sending them from the city Mm. and that paid off just time and time and time again with pictures when nobody else is getting them yeah so what do you ultimately hope that these pictures kind of will do you know apart from obviously just awareness that people can see what is actually happening you know because these poor people having to go through this well you know is that it is is there are there other things no there's many things but i guess the thing is that uh, a major event like this hadn't actually been covered like that before. Mm. Maybe the US, cl- yes, but uh, Australia, uh, like the difference between coverage of Black Saturday and and this is like just astronomical. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, there's a thousand times more imagery. So in particular, though, it will be um, the actual scientific stuff that they'll get out of it. Like the scene of fire behaviour 
um, from photographers and videographers close to major fires. They'll be able to like confirm theories, um, but they'll also be able to look at wind speeds and wind directions and yeah. stuff like that. And like the, the, that sort of stuff um, is not known, is how fires actually react. Because most of the time you haven't got fire behaviourists out there. You've got firefighters who, while they might have experience and you know layman's ideas of what's going on they don't understand what's going on in the atmosphere and so to be able to have this imagery of what's going on at the ground level as it's happening um, and then combine it with um, Doppler radar of what the atmosphere the plume itself is doing yeah there'd be hope that there'd be some I guess better analysis and also better work into predictive um, fire behavior for the future Mm. But it's also, this was a major event. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about something, there'll be, you know, extinct species. You know, people are talking about how it's, well, we better do something soon. It's like, well, it's too late. Too late now, you know, yeah. the warning was back in 2001 and 2002 with the fire behaviour then. And then Black Saturday, if 173 people being incinerated in two hours isn't a wake-up call, then, you yeah, know. what is? You talk about the fire. I mean, you talk about this idea of the battle, and you know, it's almost like a war. Yeah. I, I guess I'm interested, like PTSD. Like, do you do you suffer from? I was a little concerned about myself at the time. Certainly, the fight around um, Bilpin, where I grew up, was pretty intense. And seeing stuff like this alternate reality of where you grew up on fire was upsetting. Though I think at the time it was more just quite tired. I needed time off after yeah. that so I decided to have a lovely relaxing holiday on the south coast <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing that on your Instagram yeah. and you were like surrounded by fire on your like, holiday <laughs> it was it, that that was <laughs> the most stressful time this fire when I wasn't actually photographing yeah essentially uh, waking up at um I, I knew New Year's Eve would be bad but then I, I was up at 2 30 in the morning looking at the fire behavior and um sort of it's called hot spots so essentially picking out the satellites pick out where the hotspots are. Yeah. Seeing that uh, the fire racing towards Cabago, and I knew that that was going downhill in the middle of the night. Is yeah. it, it's like on winds that were not forecast to be that strong. Was like oh, what in the world is going on? And then yeah. then looking west and seeing these fires up around Tumbarumba, absolutely screaming up the mountains. That, that was um, frightening. And so I was uh, essentially ringing photographers and journalists and saying, we need to be down here as quickly as we possibly can. So James Brickwood got down there. Matt Abbott got moving. He's a freelancer, but um, he was actually staying nearby. But at the same time as I'm doing that, I had my dad and his step, my stepmom live in Kurrung on the south coast. And then they invited my mum and her partner down and my my three sisters with their kids and I had all my kids down there and there are several dogs so there were 17 of the family down there and that old gone is it going to be all right and I went I think so um that was before it happened but then that day while Kurrung you know in the aftermath it wasn't directly impacted we had a pyrocumulonimbus just to our west so there was lightning strikes we're watching coming out of a like a thunderstorm but a fire thunderstorm and then um ash rain so black rain on the kids they thought it was awesome in fact everyone thought that was quite funny i i did not think it was funny at all Mm. like i I knew that this was top level fire behavior that the stuff the way that kills people and like it's bad and i knew that that was just one of about seven or eight of these events going on around the state and so that was really stressful (laughs) that was really stressful Yes, I was trying to get photographers, and some of these photographers had had no experience at fires. So it was just constantly on the phone to them, okay, this is how you do it, approach it from this way, do this, do this. And then you just had to let go and just Mm. let them do it. And while they weren't particularly experienced with fires, they were all done, you know, we're talking Kate Garrity, so she's, you know, war zone. They they know how to identify and and rationalise dangers and, and, and think about it. And that was, I was very proud of how the Herald did that day. And like the, we're talking about about as close as you get to to combat sort of photography, yeah. but you know in your own country. And then so I decided I'd come back on 
because the 4th of January was looking to be particularly bad as well. So I covered fires around uh, in Nowra and then the Currawan fire when it pushed up towards Bundanoon and stuff like that. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was some... Yeah, so we're talking essentially September... October, yeah, early October I was doing fires and through to, well, since the last fire I covered was, um, was about two weeks ago. So. Yeah. so it's been a long, long haul. Yeah. But, yeah, as far as PTSD, I, I think no, no. But certainly there'll be a lot of firefighters, particularly there'll be a lot of um, volunteer firefighters who are very green. They may have only done a couple of little fires and then, like, they needed everybody so mm. you know they're thrown into a fire truck and then suddenly they're facing you know sweeping massive fires and when it turns black at you know 10 a.m and you know it's and the only thing you can show it is you know video and stills really it's yeah. it's just um, astounding to to be there the bilpin day when um so the, the the main I guess event f- for myself was um, on the twenty first of December when um, Bill Penn and the Bell's Line of Rain got hit for the third time. Fire just swept up from the south uh, on the southerly, and just I was with uh, a few um, fire and rescue crews, and the homes burned in front of us. Couldn't do anything. Um, just full in full defence mode. Um, and a firefighter got hit by a tr- um, by a truck in front of me and helping him back into the car and it was it was um, yeah f- that was a, a full on day it was really difficult to just concentrate on exposure composition yeah. and, and th- there was so much thick smoke you actually had to get really close but at the same time you're watching you're not going to get hit you're watching you're not sucking down um, like it's easy enough to walk that smoke was so thick. It was difficult to uh, work out between just eucalyptus smoke and the home burning next to you. Yeah. Uh, that stuff will kill you. So it's mm. – and then there's asbestos and all sorts of crazy stuff. And then you've got to remember to essentially have a bottle every 15 minutes. There's just lots of boxes that you've got to tick. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I am, am astounded um, at, at, at what happened. And it was just good to, I guess, be alongside and photograph some of that. Just to finish off, and I don't know how to phrase this question, but I mean, is it something that you are just good at now, or is it something that you 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 love? Um, I I don't love uh, seeing the destruction. Of course, I do love uh, being alongside um, people doing amazing things, stuff like this. And it doesn't matter where you know people talk about Australians being, you know, it's being Australian. It's like no, you see it everywhere across the world. It, it, like a natural disaster tends to bring out the best in people and that's what I saw you know even people who were annoyed that I was there I'd either talk them down or I'd actually do what they asked and just leave you're not there to make it worse for them it, it's it's so that they can look back it's just trying to convince them you won't regret it um, you'll be able to look back and have um, great pride in this and um, at what you did and you'll tell your you know, your grandkids or whatever, this is what we did on this day. I just hope that we don't see an event like that. Even though there's, everything's been burnt out, I'm very worried that what it will actually happen is you'll see an ecosystem shift and so more fire-tolerant and but fire-prone trees and, and ecosystems will move into those areas and so actually become we become more fire-prone. Right. Um, that I'm deeply worried about that mm. maybe we end on that uh, yeah happy yes. night scary thought <laughs> yeah, well, it uh, looks yeah. like my future is yeah i've got plenty of uh, you know, shots to come plenty of photos to take. Where, right. where can people find out more about you and, and your work uh so there's a few things so you know um at nampix on instagram um nick Moy photo on my website or oculi.com.au of course um you know the herald website um I'll be along there every now and then. And Andrew, where can they find you more about you? They don't need to know more about me. Uh, <laughs> they can find um, Take Magazine, uh, Instagram.com slash take underscore magazine. You can find this episode and more at OzDesignRadio.com. And if you follow the show on Twitter it's or Instagram, it's at AUSDesignRadio. 
thank you so much for sharing sharing this time with us and, and giving us an amazing insight. My pleasure, Treasure. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nick. <laughs>